So this is Scott Morey with 111 Visors, and I'm honored today to have Dave Bateman in one of your lovely offices in uh, Utah, which are lovely actually. The last time I was in Utah was, was at a wedding like 20 years ago, and I'm thinking I should move here actually. There's a lot of weddings here. There was a lot going on, <laughs> and I, 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 appreciate the I appreciate the time, and um, obviously you're CEO and founder of Entrada, the name and parts of it we're going to talk about a little bit more detail kind of as we go along because you've got some other entities that are related to that but I think for most of the listeners it will be in regards to, to what you're doing here and the company and, and your product. So as I normally do I want to go back in time uh, if you'll let me and I just want to talk about briefly kind of where you grew up and what that experience was like and I believe you went to Cheney High School and I believe you graduated in 96, if my memory is correct. Correct. Um, but is that where you grew up in Washington, or and you were raised, or was it somewhere else? So I was born in the middle of nowhere in this little farm town in Montana. Uh, and I went to grade school for a little bit there. And um, population 300, it's called Loma. And uh, kindergarten through sixth grade in the same room with one teacher. Yeah. <laughs> and so kind of a bizarre little town and um but um we have the family has a farm there that's been with uh, the family since the 1880s in fact this wood on my wall right here that you're looking at is barn wood from the family barn that my great-grandfather built in 1901 and part of it collapsed a couple years ago so i beat my brothers and sisters to it and stole some of it and put it on the wall here so oh, it looks amazing yeah so where, where is that in regards to Montana? Like, is it south or north of Billings? Or my dad used to live in Sheridan for a number of years. Oh, no way. Yeah, and I want to say I feel like I passed Loma, but I don't know. So Loma's up, uh, if you get to Great Falls, you're getting hot, mm -hmm. you're getting close. Uh, but it's it's about, an, uh, I would say, an hour's drive outside of Great Falls. Okay. Uh, northeast of Great Falls. Okay. It's beautiful country, too, actually, uh, up there. Is your family still there now? I've got, so my 99-year-old uh, grandmother lives there, yeah. born on the ranch, Yeah. and uh, I've got a brother in Great Falls and a brother in Billings, where I graduated high school, mm -hmm. um, but I, I mostly grew up in Cheney, like you said. Um, when I was uh, in grade school, I moved to Cheney, and then through my junior year in high school, I went to Cheney High School, and then moved back to Montana and graduated from high school in Montana. Okay, gotcha. Interesting. That is interesting. And then what, what got you, so you, you graduated in 96, at least what I found online, you started at BYU in 2000. So did you have a gap in between before you went to BYU? So I actually went to Montana State for a semester, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then to BYU for a semester, and, and then I went on a Mormon mission and in, uh, I went down to Honduras, Central America, and lived there for two years. Oh. And so that was a wild experience. Yeah. Um, murder capital of the Western Hemisphere. Were you in San Pedro Sula then? Uh, Tegucigalpa. Okay. Yeah. So I um, spent two years and never lived, for two years didn't live with anyone who spoke English. Yeah. And so it forced me to learn Spanish, which was good, and uh, hung on to a little bit of it, you know, after 20 years. but. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, fab fabulous experience, but I came back from that and uh, went to BYU, and that's kind of where all were the, the origins of what became Entrada. Started, yeah, started, which yeah. we'll get to in a second. And 
Funny enough, my daughter did mission trips down in San Pedro Sula. No way. And married uh, a Honduran, actually, wow. funny enough. And wow. so I've been in San Pedro Sula quite a few times. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating area, actually, in the scheme of things. Obviously, it's got some, some turmoil going on now. So forwarding to BYU, you start there in 2000. The, the, you left in 2003, effectively the same year you launched in Trotta. Now, having said that, I'm, I'm speculating some level, but there's a couple stories out there about how you got the idea. So one was about delivering food to your girlfriend that worked at, I think it was Centennial Properties, if yeah. my memory is yeah, correct. And you saw just what a disaster, I'm making it up or exaggerating the desk was. You're like, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. And that's what got you thinking about it. Is that true? It is, yeah. So I was... Uh, I was in the business school, and there was a business plan competition, and I needed to come up with an idea. And so the business plan competition actually is what would, had got me thinking, like got mm -hmm. the wheels turning, so to speak. And uh, I had a professor that told me the best way to come up with a business idea, a lot, a lot of people want to become an entrepreneur, but they, they have a hard time getting over this crux of, I, I don't have an idea, I need the right idea. Mm -hmm. And so I had this professor tell me, that the best way to come up with an idea is just be observant about the world around you and look for a place where you can either solve someone's pain, get rid of it, or you can create bring pleasure to the to the to the consumer. And so having that in mind, I yeah, I went to visit my girlfriend, um, brought subway sandwiches. <laughs> I was sitting on one side of the leasing desk counter eating a subway sandwich, she was on the other. And as people came in to pay their rent, she would walk back to, there were three file cabinets, and there's probably 800 renters at student housing in yeah. this community. So it's, it's a pretty good size operation. Um, but they had these three file cabinets, and she would walk back to the file cabinet and fish out a paper rent ledger, slap it down on the counter, and jot down hmm. the rent transaction. And then go put the piece of paper back in the file cabinet. And at the, at the end of the day, I asked her, I'm like, is this really how it works, you know? And she, she said, well, we do this during the day, but at the end of the day, they would go fire up an old DOS-based program and key all of the transactions into the DOS-based program. I think it was a program called Libra, hmm. if I recall, uh, that's now owned by AMSI, uh, but it's not the typical AMSI software that you hear of. And uh, so, so anyway, um, the, the, you know, the, the bells went off, I'm like, this is interesting. This huge, because you know, I was this scrappy little entrepreneur trying to start all these little online businesses. And then I come, and I had no revenue, but I was automating everything in these little businesses, that, ideas that I had. And I walk into this huge, what to me was a huge, you know, hmm. multi-family or apartment operation. And it was just as technologically backwards as you could imagine. And so I'm like, okay, there's got, there's got to be some opportunity in this space. And so that set off a series of, uh, you know, um, research endeavors that to, to kind of lead us down the path of what we became. And what was, because Forbes in some way was a sponsor of that uh, competition, weren't they or not, or some way involved? Yeah, so we were actually undergrads. Um, I was a junior by the time this took place. And uh, we won BYU's business plan competition, mm -hmm. which consists of the MBA program students mm -hmm. also. And so Fortune Small Business Magazine had a, uh, what they called the MBA showdown, which was a national competition. 
but it was for MBA students. Mm -hmm. So you're feeling pretty good about this. <laughs> well, they wouldn't let us in. Oh, you're kidding me. No, because we were undergrads. And so the dean of the business school yeah. calls them up and he's like, they beat the MBA students, you gotta let them in. <laughs> and so they let us in and uh, somehow we pulled off a miracle and ended up winning this fortune, this MBA showdown, beat Harvard. And um, so we, we won that competition, we took second place in Forbes comp the Forbes competition. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up all in, I think it was like maybe $85,000 in business plan, mm -hmm. prize money, uh, to kind of, you know, prime the pump and, and get things moving, hired a couple programmers. And um, so yeah, that was, that was the early days. But it, see at some level, I feel like it was in your DNA and you'll tell me, but there, I had read something that you had started something in 2000 called Dear Elder which was about yeah. sending packages and letters and people that were on their missions, right? In the yeah. scheme of things. So this wasn't the first time you were trying to start something, I think. Is that accurate or am I off? No, that's accurate. Um, that's, that's in fact how I learned to code. So again, I was a business student, uh, f fresh back from this Mormon mission. And again, this concept of looking for pain, you know, um, as, a, as a missionary, it took forever to get letters. It took forever to get packages. And so, um, did you actually get any in Honduras, by the way? Did the mail actually make it to, to you in Honduras? It, it had to be did. impossible. It was actually reliable because the Mormon church mm. uh, circumvented the mail system and started doing their own mail system, essentially. And so people would mail their letters to the church in Salt Lake. They were not efficient, but it was reliable. Hmm. So it would take three weeks to get communication. And you're not allowed, until recently, Mormon missionaries weren't allowed to call home only two times a year. Oh wow! And so it was a it was kind of it was a painful part of the mission, just the, the inefficient communication. So that was my first little business idea. I had no money, and so I uh, just went and got a book coding for dummies. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm gonna figure this out, and it was a bigger undertaking than I thought at the time. Um, but I kept at it. I actually got a job at a little web design company for four months and learned to code. Took computer science classes and spent about 18 months building this thing out, um, learning to code from uh, the, the perspective of being an entrepreneur, a tech entrepreneur was the best thing I could have ever done. Best education I got mm -hmm. that helped me do what I've done. And um, so when I started Entrada, I'd already started a business, mm -hmm. uh, run a business, again, small, but uh, I'd learned to code Kind of, uh, I had some employees, had some resources, had, had some desks, had some computers, and um, kind of that that helped me get started as much as winning the business plan competitions and, and all that. Well, it's interesting. I think to coming back then when that started. So you left school the end of your junior year. You had some other folks with you in the beginning. I don't know if they were partners or just employees, but I think about Ben and Mike, right? And I think yeah. if my memory's right, Ben was here through. Actually, I think it was president, right, of Entrada through last year, a couple years back. And the other gentleman, seemed like he left relatively quickly, and I was just following his background. Mm -hmm. I think it's called Homies right now. Oh, yeah. And he seems like very like he's starting one thing up after another, and, and yeah. it's fascinating. But what role did they play kind of when, when you launched and, and, and the mix and kind of the other people that you got involved? So uh, they, they say that in a you know, uh, tech startup like ours, you want to have, there, there's this book called E-Myth, that's a pretty good book, and they say, hmm. you want to have the entrepreneur, the manager, and the technician. 
those are the three roles. You can't, you can't be successful without those three hats. And so I was the technician, uh, or sorry, I was the entrepreneur, mm -hmm. uh, Mike was the technician, and Ben was the manager. Okay. So those are kind of how the roles um, were laid out to begin with. And yeah, Mike's a serial entrepreneur. Uh, he got bored a little quick and you know moved on after three years or so. And then Ben stuck around for quite a while and um, he's off doing some nonprofit work now and some really good things. And um, but yeah, so I haven't read that book. I have to read it, but you're right on the categories. It's a good it's a good recipe, right? And the combination of the three. If you don't have one, one of the three, yeah. it's it's tough. It's problematic. Yeah. yeah. There's no doubt about it. So and then I look at the the trajectory of the company, right? So you launched in two thousand three. I got a summary in front of me, as you can see, no one else can. 2007, then you start, I may mispronounce, I want to say um, Zento. Zinto? Yeah. What's the right pronunciation? I apologize. Yeah, Zento. Zento. Uh -huh. uh, in India, which is still an active and a large entity. In 2012, you did a rewrite that was released. 2013, you're on the EY, Ernst Young Award. 2015, you had a, it looked like a major product release called Intrata Core. And then you go to today where you've got just shy of 2,000 employees and 107 million in revenue. You've got no outside debt. We're talking about this before a little mm -hmm. bit. You have no, maybe minor, but if anyone, uh, outside partners. And um, there is no doubt, actually, you're a dominant force in, in the marketplace of which there aren't many players. And the other players, as you and I know, have been around for a long time. So it's got to be exciting for you and with the growth rates and, and, um, and what you're doing. So talk about the 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 growth years like again this beautiful office building you have now the first eight years we were saying earlier at eight thousand square feet you got out of that i read something that you felt 2000 i think around 11 12 was really you hit a turn in growth and that your trajectory has been quite dramatic in a positive way since then yeah. can you just talk about those years and what that was like and and some of the things that's happened sure so the first the first four years actually from 2003 to 2007 was just trying to get our first version of our product solid and that was tough and um, I had six engineers through that period and I had two engineers probably my best engineers quit on the same day in December of 2006 and that was just terrifying it was one of those moments I've had a couple moments where I'm like okay uh, this could be it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so, but I, basically what I did is I'm like, well, I'm going to go all in on India. So I took those, the pay from those two engineers and I booked a flight, didn't even have a hotel booked or anything, but hopped on a flight and just flew out to India and landed. And, um, within three weeks, uh, I had the beginnings of an operation in India, uh, up and coming, and I was well on my way to having, uh, within two months, I think I had 20 engineers hired hmm. uh, that cost me the same amount as the two engineers that I lost. And so I just moved out there, I spent about a year out there, and we, re, we basically recoded the entire system in, um, I would say in about six months, and uh, made some huge improvements to the system, and then I came back uh, to the U.S. and um, shortly thereafter we landed our first big account in 2007, which was with Riverstone, mm -hmm. who's now uh, been acquired by Graystar. But these uh, Riverstone was big. I mean, they were 
I want to say they were the biggest company in the space, uh, 200,000 units. And uh, so it was just too, too good to be true, right? Um, and then we went on a tear from 2007 to 2012, where we went from one of the NMHC top 50, mm -hmm. which is NMHC is a uh, kind of a government lobbying organization, right, that uh, ranks the biggest apartment operators in the US. We went from one to 36 of the top 50 in like five years. And we weren't getting a lot of uh, revenue, a lot of wallet share revenue per unit out of these units per se, but they were using some of our tools. And we had a land and expand strategy. So if we could get in with any product, uh, we could prove ourselves and then expand into the portfolios. So those were exciting times. Uh, our first products that we, we launched that help, helped us really do the whole land and expand thing is we built the first really solid consumer-facing uh, interfaces to engage the consumer in the multifamily space. Mm -hmm. uh, Real Page and Yardy were trying to do it. There was a company called Ellipse, if you remember Ellipse I back did. in the day. Um, there was, well, Apartments 24-7. Uh, there were a number of co companies kind of fighting to win that uh, the website space, and then another series of companies fighting to win the payment space. Mm -hmm. And we, we took on both at the same time, and that uh, duality where we could provide both solutions together allowed us to beat the point solution providers. And we ended up becoming the dominant, by far the dominant player in, those, in the consumer-facing tools. And then we started building out more and more products. Uh, we built, you know, credit screening solution, a utility billing solution, a uh, yeah, renter's insurance uh, product. We built lead management tools, uh, you know, a tablet uh, application that would allow the leasing agent to kind of walk a prospect through the leasing process in a digital interface. Um, reputation management tools and just ba basically we expanded and now we have 40 products and uh, kind of the the key piece that brings all the products together is our core property management accounting software solution that we released into general availability in 2015 and we now have uh, I just looked 970,000 apartments are running that core accounting system now property management system, I should say. And uh, so which we, we see it as, you know, um, of the, the verticals that we're going after, um, about ten, pretty close to 10% of uh, the enterprise market mm -hmm. in multifamily just after about three and a half years. So we're thrilled with the progress we've made, uh, our growth's accelerating. Uh, and yeah, we're, we're excited for the next few years is to continue to, to grab market share. It's kind of hard not to be excited, <laughs> to be honest with you. I think the, the story is a great story. What about like along the way, whether that's now or in the past, and I have some folks, uh, I refer to them as uncles, but they're like mentors to me and I've known them for years. And uh, now I'm in my 50s, whatever, not that it matters, they're kind of in their 70s and, and I rely on them and important times for guidance. Do you have folks like that on the outside that, that have played that role for you? Uh, absolutely, on the outside and on the inside. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've had a, a number of mentors that um, 
what's, what's been refreshing about some of them is they see the world through a much different lens than me, which is really good. Uh, I disagree with them a lot. And I, I have one that just said, raise money, raise money, raise money. And we, we raised less than a million dollars total in the first two years. And then I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm, I suck at raising money. I'm giving away too much equity. <laughs> uh, and so we bootstrapped from there. Um, but it, this gentleman's name's uh, Gary Williams. And he was actually the professor of the class, taught the class that, uh, where I wrote the business plan. Hmm. And he um, has just been a great sounding board. Um, one of my early investors, his name's Nobu Mutaguchi. Uh, again, very different guy. Um, and he's a, he lives in Japan about, I don't know, I'd say two thirds of the year, and he's here one third of the year. But um, in certain ways, like uh, he's been a great resource for me um, with, in terms of just the overall kind of finance and finance side of the business. Mm -hmm. And then um, I, there's a, a number of local entrepreneurs here in the valley that, uh, I mean, we we call ourselves here the Silicon Slopes, and we are a tiny fraction the size of Silicon Valley, but we think we're big time here. And uh, there's some companies here that are just iconic companies in our tech scene, which is now 10% of Utah's economy. Uh, so my next door neighbor was uh, uh, Ryan Smith, who founded Qualtrics, that just sold to SAP for eight billion. A uh, really, really good friend who helped me find my first investors uh, and just a really good guy that uh, has some strengths that in terms of just lighting people on fire. Uh, his name's Josh James mm -hmm. and he, he just knows how to create energy and create teams. Um, he founded a company, company called Omniture that sold to Adobe for $2.1 billion. And they are the office right down here. Is that why it's Adobe Road when I drove in? Exactly. I know. <laughs> yes. Thanks to Josh. Yes. <laughs> he kicks himself every time he drives past seeing that he sold that. But <laughs> Yeah, it's all, it's all good. You can't complain when you get a $2.1 billion check, though. No, you can't. Away. And I can't imagine. I mean, you've got a lot of people. I'm sure they've got to be chasing you now because it's going to lead me down a, the path around prop tech as a loose category. And um, I've been... Digging on that, trying to understand fact from fiction, right? Because we're in this up cycle, although I think it's, we're already in the down cycle and people just don't see it yet. Because I hear about people coming back that had a, a making it up, $50 million valuation, it's now 10 and they're trying to hang on. In, in tech. In tech, yeah. And I think about 99 when I was around, that was a bubble, right? When you were going to school, we were tracking 350 real estate related startups. If you're curious, I'll send the mm -hmm. slide to you. And now I think, I forgot who, maybe it might be CRE Tech with Michael Beckerman or someone, there's a list of 3,500. And then supposedly, of course, they include space as a service, which isn't really tech at the end of the day, but it gets lumped in, which, which might skew the numbers up. Like workspace, is that what you're Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you would, you know, you'd say WeWork and Airbnb and, and that stuff. And so in aggregate, they would say last year there was something like, I think it was 9.6 billion. But, I mean, the point of that is when, when, what I really found in the end is you've got some outside money coming in that's new to the space, which is all good and it's healthy, right, in the scheme of things. But that real change is happening in companies like yours. It, it's not these private equity small guys that are, you were reading about all the time in the press. It's folk like yourselves that are looking there that are solving tangible problems either organically in the development of your product or through acquisition, really, right? But I'd love to get your view of that world and 
kind of what's happening now on the investment side and all these tech-related real estate startups and and where you see that washing out and where, where real value is getting created or not. Yeah, great question. Glad you asked it. Uh, because I do have a very different perspective on uh, the whole private equity world. Uh, and this, this might be uh, kind of a weird tangent, but uh, so one of my favorite quotes uh, from Steve Jobs is somebody asked him, why do you do what you do? And he said, I want to make a dent in the universe. And there's the entrepreneurs, I feel like the entrepreneurs that really change things, they, they're not about some exit. They're not about a quick buck. They're trying to make a dent in the universe. And so I look at like, that's always been my approach. I want to do something positive in my life and I want to leave behind something valuable. And, uh, I feel like this company for me, that's, this is the vehicle to do it. And, uh, so if you look though, there's kind of, there's some perverse things going on in our tax system in the U S where in order to, um, maybe not in real estate because the ability to transfer, and roll your uh, equity into another asset. Mm -hmm. um, but in tech, like you, you start a company, you grow it, and if you want capital gains tax treatment, you gotta sell it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's what's created the whole private equity, not the whole private equity world, but for the most part, um, a lot of the business that lands on the table of private equity is because entrepreneurs have this perverse incentive to sell their companies prematurely. And because my interest, by my main goal is not to get some paycheck, it's to make a dent in the universe. Like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it. I feel like companies, most companies sell in their first 10 years, tech companies. And a lot of times they get bought up by private equity. And I've seen time after time after time when a tech company gets bought by private equity, unless it's a really, really big company, it usually diminishes mm -hmm. and kind of falls apart. Gets lost. Yeah. The entrepreneurs leave, uh, it usually gets loaded up with debt, uh, usually there's staff that's laid off in order to create the uh, net income required to maximize the debt that you can load the business with. And so all these things create this almost inevitable decline of software companies after a private equity firm invests. Now this isn't always the case, but this is my observation, particularly in this industry. And so... I would never do that to my business. I don't care what kind of, like I've had people offer me money to buy the business and I, I don't even ask them how much. Like I'm just, no, the answer is no. And I, I also feel like most companies, again, because of the, this quest for capital gains, uh, they, they sell their companies prematurely, but I feel like tech companies particularly, few companies do what Facebook did, where they just blow up in the first decade. Usually tech companies, particularly vertical tech companies, it's not in their first 10 years that they make their killing, it's in their second decade. And if you're exiting before you're able to hit your stride in the second decade, I mean, you're leaving on the table an incredible amount of opportunity to make a debt in the universe. Mm -hmm. and, and if cash is the goal, you're leaving a lot of cash on the table. So it's sad mm -hmm. to me um, that, that we have the system that we do. Uh, speaking of, like, I talked about a little bit about private equity, but venture capital, what forces companies into that premature exit is you go, you go raise VCs money 
VCs have how long of funds? Not that long. 10 year, 12 year funds. At best, yeah. And they're usually, they're starting to get anxious after five to seven years mm -hmm. to unload it. Because uh, they got to liquidate before the 10 year time frame. Mm -hmm. And so it, if you raise VC money, you're almost forced into a major equity transaction, equity event, IPO, or a sale in your first decade before you can hit that stride. Well, it's the only way for them to monetize it. But wouldn't you say too, at some level, I mean, you, you said something really interesting earlier that, um, I, and I could word it a couple of different ways, but what you were talking about is I'm, I'm in this because I want to make a dent and make a difference, really, right? And that I'm sure, right, and you're 19 years in, you had probably horrific financial years, not, not as a company, but individually, right? Because you make sacrifices. And if you're not passionate about it, you're never going to get through that cycle. And so what I tend to see more, uncle, in line with what you're saying, if I take the private equity of the VC guys, just general, I'm trying to get an exit, they don't have that same level of passion. They're in it for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And I normally think that not always, and I don't, generalizations are never safe, that the product or whatever it is they're providing reflects that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that you're, sort of accelerates the demise. If, you're, if your goal is a quick exit, it, that informs every decision you make in your business. Correct. And you're not creating, you're, you're focused on creating short-term value for the customer and mm -hmm. not long-term. And whether it's the systems you build or the way you approach your service model mm -hmm. or whatever it is, it's short-lived value. Yeah. Because you're looking for short-lived value. Yeah. So. Interesting, a, a tangent, and I forget the name of the book, but you look at public companies now, generically really, right? And it's all about shareholder value. You know when you go back in the 40s what it was about? It wasn't just shareholder value, it was the collective chain of who you influenced. And so it had this mid and longer term play about, it's about my customers and my employees and my vendors. And then it turned in the 70s where it's about my shareholders. And yeah. in REITs, I've, as you know, I did a couple tours in them but do a lot of work with them. You know, they'll chew off their arm for a penny of earnings and you could take a three billion revenue dollar company and a penny of earnings is $10 million. It's like a rounding error. Yeah. And if they, you and I know, if they don't make that penny, it's a real problem mm -hmm. and the market just slaughters them. Yeah. And so the whole, even that system I'd argue is broken in a different way, right? Yeah. It is, there's a myopia. There's a too much focus on this next quarter, yeah. obviously. And that's why it hurts to become a, a publicly traded company. And one of the reasons uh, is because you, you start worrying about the quarter instead mm -hmm. of the long game. Uh, but it, I, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I always felt that there are three key groups of people that any decision you make in the business, it's not just the investors. You, you have a moral imperative to be concerned about the investors, but also the employees mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, certainly the customers. And when you're making decisions solely for the benefit of the investor, uh, it comes back to bite the investors um, for yeah. one. Um, but just as far as the moral imperative is concerned, uh, I mean, you're trying to, if you're trying to make a debt in the universe, you cannot alienate the other two mm -hmm. uh, legs of the tripod, so to speak. And so I love that you brought that up. And I didn't know that pre-1970, <laughs> there was a kind of an ideological change of that yeah. difference. So that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, it was really, I read it, I think it was in the Times, was summarizing a, a book. I got to find the name of the book again, which I did read, but... The short of the story was that, which which is fascinating. And maybe, you know, maybe we'll get back to that. Everything comes in cycles, and you look about the level of, um, I use the word loosely, social consciousness, mm -hmm. right? Which has become much more prevalent in the last ten years or five years, certainly. Yeah. 
And maybe we'll make that shift again in some ways. I would hope so, actually, because I don't think the short-term view in whatever scenario, whether it's private equity and your or VC money and you're, you, you got to exit or if you're public and you're making decisions to get that penny of earnings, when if you made a different decision, you would get two pennies in a year or yeah. whatever it is or yeah. 10 years. So you're 19 years into this. Uh, 16. 16 years. Yeah. And that's true. Sorry, 2003. You look much younger than that, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so you handle stress very well. But if you go out 16 years, where are you? What, is, what does this look like now when you go out in the future? What's the vision? Well, gosh, I'm uh, um, running the risk of uh, looking overconfident. Mm -hmm. I think that's about the time that this is a slow moving space. But I think uh, we will, like, I'm absolutely confident that our the underlying integrity of our architecture, our software architecture, will continue to allow us to move at a pace that neither RailPage nor Yardi can keep up with. And I feel like we are going to uh, be the dominant player in the space by that point. Mm -hmm. um, I still think Yardi and RailPage could be great companies. Um, sadly, I feel like uh, competition's a great thing. Um, it made us who we are. It makes, you know, uh, you know, c companies evolve largely in part because you, you got to, particularly in tech, you got to move, you got to fight, you got to hustle. And uh, um, we've seen that. And, uh, but I, I feel like the, we can, we are start just scratching the surface on what these tech platforms can do uh, in the space. I think there are big barriers to entry to build large platforms like what RealPage, Yardi, and Entrada mm -hmm. created. Um, so I feel like RealPage and Yardi, I mean, they're, they're worthy and um, difficult competitors. And so I still think they're going to be around. I think they'll be great companies, but I think we're going to see a lot of success. And I think there's going to be a big shift. Um, I think the, the technology, you know, there's a article by Mark Andreessen um, from Andreessen Horowitz, uh, mm -hmm. founder of Netscape. Um, but there's this article called Software's Eating the World. And where we've traditionally seen ourselves as these cloud solutions that are isolated, you know, mm -hmm. that are um, helping organize and manage data. But we're gonna, our platform's gonna reach down into every aspect of the community over the next 15 years from access control to home automation, mm -hmm. to uh, providing lots of different types of services that will uh, make the multifamily uh, value proposition much stronger for the renter. Mm -hmm. uh, where people like do not want to own, own a single family home because the, the benefits of being in an apartment, the, the, the services and the value proposition is just going to become stronger and stronger. And I think we are a huge part of delivering that value uh, over the next 15 years to the space. And you started to make some of those moves too on the smart billing and other categories, right? It, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I if think you, you're right. If you look, we were talking a little bit before the, the podcast about the landscape in the 90s mm -hmm. and just crazy fragmented space right where uh you know you you there were no platforms it, w it was a bunch of disparate systems that largely speaking didn't talk to each other mm -hmm. uh in the 2000s they started to talk to each other and then in this decade now they're actually starting to become cohesive platforms but now look at the technology that's 
the, the hardware, the physical mm -hmm. technology on-premise in the apartment communities. And it is the same, we're in the same place with that as where we were with these technology products mm -hmm. in the 90s. And we're gonna see over the next 15 years uh, that crazy fragmented mess, frankly, is going to start to become cohesive and move together and Amazon's going to be opening your door and putting your packet inside, mm -hmm. package inside so nobody's still, you know, it's going to become incredibly automated. And uh, it's, I'm so excited to be, to be, to be part of that mm -hmm. and to help uh, compete for, you know, to, to be that platform. So I equate it to, like, mm -hmm. you think about PCs and in the, whatever, 70s, like Macs, right? Mac 2, my dad got me one. And I think in the 80s, and you had the different protocols and token ring and, and ethernet and it was all confusing and no one knew what it meant. All you knew is you just wanted to sort of plug your thing in and work and think about now, even my laptop sitting in front of me, it just works. Yeah. And so I think that's the evolution where you take initially kind of enterprise level systems which still have a ways to go to be that seamless. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the, it's a protocol issue, it's more than that though too. It's a mindset. Like I think about some of these control systems in buildings, the vendors don't want you to interact with them or they want to check for you to get the API to interact with it. They're dead in the water. They just don't know it yet, right? And eventually, I think you're right, that stuff is going to be more seamlessly plugged in. And then the real value, which you get, is, the, is, is what you do with it, right? And how you create that experience that's unified and automated in a way. And it, it's like a tipping point, right? When, when, it, when it gets all the way there, it, it's not going back. And you're probably right in apartments because the cost to maintain a house already, they always say home ownership, you, you know, everyone should own a home and then you get one. I'm like, what was I thinking, right? Yeah. <laughs> when the there's roof no leaks pool, or, right? There's no job. <laughs> right. There's, it's further away from your job. I can't call it's, someone to fix it. There's not one number. It's yes. like my wife's telling me to do it. Yeah. And I'm like, and so. Then, and you can't move. You can't. Correct. Take that new job offer because you bought the house. Like it's an anchor. Correct. Anyway, I, it's funny. Yeah. So let's go back. I always mm -hmm. end on this question, and we're I don't want to carry over in our a lot of time. But if you were to go back, you know, twenty years or go back to two thousand when you were starting at BYU, and you were going to give yourself advice, right? So the the twenty year old version of you walked in this office and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing X." What would be your advice for them? What would you tell them? <clears throat> um, well, there's all sorts of things that I could tell myself that would have helped me immensely that are unrealistic for me to have known or mm -hmm. to have had plopped in my lap. So I, 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 I have a hard time answering that question, but the one thing that I would say uh, is find people who've been through war, more people, more advisors, um, more people that I can trust. And I would say have more dialogue and more communication with people that have already made the mistakes. So maybe I could have hmm. avoided a few mistakes. Um, you know, uh, I'll be vulnerable here for a little bit, but I went through a divorce a few years ago. And that's nothing, you never plan for that. Hmm. And um, if you're starting a business, you need to if you think you might start a business, you better think about, like that's, that's a horrible thing you hope to never have to go through and you never think you will, but. I was there too, it's brutal. You can't prepare for it, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but, but, but contingency plan. Entrepreneurs, we mm -hmm. are uh, fundamentally optimists. 
we do not plan for the downside. And that's something I will say is uh, manage your downside. Um, I mean, in investment terms, a lot of, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs give away what are called liquidation preferences, mm -hmm. where that guy's gonna get his money before anybody else gets their money. And man, I've seen entrepreneurs get annihilated, spend 10 years of their life building a business, but they gave away a liquidation preference, something happened, unfortunate, and they literally get nothing mm -hmm. for their 10 years work. So I'd say manage the downside. Be an optimist, but, but, but manage the downside. And that could be divorce, that could be liquidation preferences, that could be partnerships. Um, be really careful with who you give equity to. I've seen businesses give 50% of the company away to the guy to build the first version of the product. It literally wrecks the company. Um, be careful to align incentives all throughout your organization. Um, feed off data. Uh, gut, the gut never, I don't discount the value of gut, your gut, but man, data's, <laughs> let your gut work off data. Um, so anyway, those, I would say those are some of the things I tell myself 16 years ago. <laughs> I think those are, those are good lessons. Well, Dave, I can't thank you enough for the time. I really appreciated the conversation and I wish you the best of luck and have no doubt you guys will be here for, for a long time. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was fun uh, chatting with you and uh, yeah, appreciate you making the trip out.